You'll turn with me this morning to Luke chapter 4. Luke 4, we continue in our journey through the gospel of Luke. This morning's title is Rejecting Jesus. Our keywords for our worshipers in training are Nazareth, Elijah, and healing. Now in today's text, we're going to see a pattern that will be developed throughout Jesus's ministry in many different ways on a smaller scale. But we'll also see it in the larger scale that you will identify very quickly. That the overall scope of his ministry as a savior of the world shows a very distinct pattern. Here it is. I hope you keep this in mind as we walk through Luke because you'll see it time and again. I think you'll be surprised how often it shows up. It is this, that Jesus is at first gladly and joyfully received by a people. He's loved. He is celebrated. And then he begins to preach. He begins to teach. He's misunderstood. He's misrepresented by his hearers. And then he is completely rejected by many of those very same people, often resulting in them seeking to put him to death. Now, this is certainly the case in today's text. This is certainly the case in the overall trajectory of Jesus's ministry. We sang about it just a moment ago. One day they're singing hosannas unto king. The next day they shout, crucify him. It is the ministry of Jesus. So what we see today is that the people in his own hometown of Nazareth get so upset with what he has to say that they want to throw him over the side of a cliff to his death. How do we get there? Before we get to that, Luke gives us some background that we need to consider that leads up to Jesus' teaching in the synagogue that day in Nazareth. So let's begin in verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. There's several things to note here. Luke is now beginning to describe Jesus' ministry in the place of Galilee, and will do so all the way through chapter 9. Now, what's significant to note here is that Luke leaves out about a year's worth of Jesus's ministry, which happened in Judea following his baptism and his temptation. So chronologically, as you look at the gospel of Luke alongside the gospel of John specifically, we see that Jesus did not go directly from the temptation in the wilderness that we looked at last time. Uh, to Galilee. Now that would be supposed chronologically if you read Luke in that way. But as we put the Gospels together, we see a bit differently. Now remember, each of the Gospel writers under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit had a different task in writing. Different intended audiences, different main point of emphasis. And we need to harmonize those gospel accounts together. Look at them all together, side by side, if we want the full breadth of what God wants us to know about the life and ministry of Jesus. Now, 
Even then, if we do that, remember that John tells us in his gospel that there would not be enough room in all the world to hold all the books that could be written of the great works of Jesus in his ministry. So Luke fast forwards from where we looked at the end of his temptation in the wilderness with Satan. He goes to Galilee. So I would say if your Bible has a section header or a title in this section like mine that says Jesus begins his ministry or something of that nature, it's not entirely accurate. Now, remember, those section titles are not part of the inspired text. They're just there for our help. But it would be right to say that this is the beginning of Jesus's Galilean ministry, which is very significant. It's approximately a year and a half that Jesus spends... Uh, going through various towns and villages of Galilee, of which the early church father Josephus wrote were about 240 in number. So there are plenty of places for Jesus to go. But what was his purpose? What was he doing when he gets there? Well, first, notice that Luke writes that Jesus went to Galilee. How? He went in the power of the Holy Spirit. He went in the power of the Spirit. This is a reminder to us of what we've already seen twice. Remember, at Jesus' baptism, the Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove. And we saw that he was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Now we see Luke reminding us again that Jesus is functioning in the power of the Spirit. And as we've identified many different times throughout the Gospel of Luke already, he's seeking to present Jesus in his humanity. Therefore, he continues to point out the absolute reliance that Jesus had upon God the Father and upon the Holy Spirit. So what happens? Jesus arrives in Galilee, and what does he do? What is the focus of his ministry? Where does he go? He goes into the synagogues, and he preaches. And as a result, Luke writes, a report went out through all the surrounding country. And verse 15 tells us he was being glorified by all. Now that right there implies something to us, doesn't it? It wasn't unusual for synagogues to hear the preaching of different teachers as they traveled through town. It's very much the same as us having someone come who's a visitor to preach here. But notice there was a lot of buzz about the man preaching in the synagogue named Jesus. In other words, they recognized he wasn't any common old preacher. Listen, there's a lot of men all throughout the world who are preaching the Bible every single week in the same church year after year after year. And yet most of them remain relatively unknown throughout the world. There are very few pastors, preachers, teachers throughout the history of the church that ever have any kind of notoriety in their own community, let alone the surrounding country. So it's significant that Jesus was so popular, and it seems that it happened rather quickly. He hasn't been preaching long. But already we see that he is talked about, he is known, he is adored by the people. He is being glorified by all. Thousands of people were seeking to hear from him already. If he was preaching today, he would have had many, many people downloading his podcasts and subscribing to his YouTube channel. 
They wanted to hear what the rabbi had to say. This was beginning the pattern that I mentioned earlier. He was a celebrity of sorts. Now he's on his home turf. He's the hometown celebrity. You can imagine if Jesus came today, instead of in the first century, you would drive into Galilee and specifically into the town of Nazareth, and there might be a big sign that says Nazareth, the birthplace of Jesus Christ, or someone would try to get his name on the water tower or something. But it won't last long for him. Let's keep reading. Verse 16. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. So every Sabbath day you could find Jesus in a synagogue. And now that he was in the midst of his ministry, it can safely be assumed that when he was there, he was teaching. Particularly given this new sort of status that he had. Being with God's people on the Sabbath day, in worship, under the teaching of the word of God, was not optional for Jesus. He was there. Wherever that was, he was with the people of God. Luke tells us it was his custom. Now, much can be said here regarding the centrality of the church and the life of God's people and the importance of Sabbath observance, but I think we all get the point. Suffice it to say that Sabbath observance and the gathering with God's people for worship every single week were of importance to Jesus because God made known to him his word and it's important to God. Jesus, in obedience to the Father, has done all that was commanded. That included being among the people of God on the Sabbath. Verse 17. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is a quotation from Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, with the insertion of a statement from Isaiah 58 and verse 6. But if you look at these verses in the book of Isaiah, you notice that Jesus stops before he gets to the end of Isaiah 61 and verse 2. In its entirety, it would read, and in Luke, it'd be verse 19. It reads, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. So why does Jesus stop with the phrase, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor? Well, Jesus is using this passage to communicate two things. Explicitly... He's about to tell his hearers that he is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. And we'll get to that in just a moment. But by stopping this passage where he did, he makes it clear that the year, referring to a time period, saying it's like saying now is the time. Now is the time of the Lord's favor. Not the, the judgment of God. The, the vengeance of God is not yet to come. Now, generally, the Old Testament prophets viewed uh, this, um, this idea of God's favor and God's vengeance all coming in a consolidated event, all at one time. It seems to be clear in Isaiah's prophecy. But Jesus is identifying his fulfillment of the year of the Lord's favor and the delay of the judgment of God. 
And it surely would have gotten their attention that Jesus simply stopped in the middle of the prophecy. And we'll come back to what he's saying as he fulfills this in just a moment. But let's see what happens after he reads from the scroll. Verse 20. He rolled up the scroll. He gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. It was common for Jewish rabbis to preach from a seated position. They would stand, read the text, then they would sit down to teach. But notice how specific Luke is in his wording. He says, the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Certainly, they were already taken by his reading of the text. Why did he stop where he did? What will he say? Surely this man who has been talked about all throughout the country will have something marvelous, something wonderful to say. What will it be? Here it is, verse 21. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Wow. This is a power-packed statement from Jesus, isn't it? Here's how it lands on them. They understand what's being said in Isaiah. He says, I am the Messiah. That's exactly what they would have heard. That's exactly, if they wanted to, would have understood him to mean knowing the scriptures. And as a side note, it seems as though this is why Luke starts with this event after the temptation in the wilderness. He wants to introduce the teaching ministry of Jesus here in Galilee because he very clearly and very specifically points out that he himself understood that he was the Messiah. What Jesus said that day in the synagogue of Nazareth when he began his Galilean ministry is the perfect summary of who he is and what he has come to accomplish. So what is that? Before we press on, we need to look at what Jesus is identifying as being fulfilled in him. So we need to look back at verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon Jesus. He has been anointed to proclaim good news to the poor. Now, we see in verse 18 that in no way is Jesus limiting this idea of poverty to physical or even social material wealth. Certainly these are in mind, but they are not the whole picture. In fact, they're not even most important. The emphasis of Jesus is on a conscious, moral, and spiritual poverty. Many times the two go in hand in hand, don't they? Those without physical wealth, those without cultural status, understand most often that they are in great need. Oftentimes the rich are completely consumed by their wealth, and the goods and their status overwhelms and we see no need for wealth outside ourselves. That's us, all of us. We live in a culture of affluence and riches. We must pray diligently that the Lord keeps us from being consumed by stuff. This is exactly what Jesus addresses in Revelation 3:17 with the church of Laodicea. He says, "You say I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing." not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So Jesus has come to tell us we are poor. 
And there is good news in this for us. We are pitiable. We are poor. We are blind and naked. But it is the year of the Lord's favor. James 2, 5 reminds us, Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He has promised to those who love Him? The Messiah brings good news to those who are spiritually bankrupt, spiritually destitute, those who recognize their place of bankruptcy and destitution. Now, notice there are three categories of individuals that Jesus identifies as being poor, all in different ways. And he identifies his relationship or his mission to each one of them. What will Jesus do for each class of poor? What good news does he proclaim for each of these people? The first is that he says he is to proclaim liberty to the captives. Captives or prisoners. The literal rendering means something akin to a prisoner of war. The war of sinful man is against a holy and righteous God. And man is held captive in this war by his own sin, the sin of his flesh. Sinful man is held captive by many forms of sin of the flesh, isn't he? Sins of the physical form, sexual immorality, addictions, theft. Sins of the heart, pride, lust, greed, covetousness. And really it can be said that man is held captive in a war that is waged for our affections. The war that is being waged day by day by day by everything in the world that is crying out for us to worship. Jesus has come to set prisoners free from the power of idolatry. The power of ensnaring, liberty-crushing sin. We sing about this. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. So if you are in Christ, the chains of captivity have been loosed. You've been set free in Christ. This is the testimony of every true believer in Jesus, isn't it? Long my Imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin in nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. You ever think of those words as we sing them? What a beautiful picture of God granting liberty to us who were once captive. Jesus proclaims and grants liberty to prisoners. Secondly, we see that he says he is to grant recovery of sight to the blind. The sinner is blinded with unbelief. But Jesus heals the blind eyes of his children, giving them eyes to see and believe that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. Remember, in Acts chapter 26, Paul is telling his story and explaining what happened when Jesus literally knocks him to the ground on the road to Damascus. Instantly, Paul was saved. He's given new life in Christ And Jesus told him what his mission would be. Here it is. He says, I am sending you to open their eyes 
to turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they might receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So Paul, too, had the testimony of every true believer. I once was blind, but now, now I see. Think of all the times in Paul's letters when he was so incredibly overwhelmed by the grace of God in his life. Why was that? Because for so long, Paul thought that he was the richest of men because of his religious and ethnic pedigree. He outlines all of it in Philippians. Remember, a Hebrew of Hebrew, a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was from the right tribe. He, he passed through all the right rituals. Externally, he was blameless as to the law. And yet, he was knocked off his high horse by Jesus. And Paul instantly had his eyes opened and he saw that he was blind. He wasn't rich at all. He was destitute. He was poor. He was a prisoner. But because of the grace of God and Jesus Christ, now he could see. That's our testimony if we're Christians, right? We can see because he's given sight to the blind. Third, we see that Jesus says he will set free the oppressed. Jesus gives freedom to those who are oppressed by the circumstances of life. Not freedom from hardship and trial and difficulty and persecution, but freedom from the enslaving thought that there is no hope. It's a great burden. It's tiring. It's hopeless to live a shattered and broken life where we see no hope bound to the desires of Satan, oppressed by the consequences of our own sin, Jesus grants freedom to the oppressed. We who were once oppressed have been delivered and set free. Free in Christ, free indeed. So by the work of the Messiah, through individual inner renewal of His people, a new kind of society will emerge. He's laying the groundwork for this. Everyone is cared for. Justice and truth and goodness prevail universally. This is the accomplishment of the work of Jesus as he moves us toward the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, the city of God in the garden of purity and perfection. A restoration of all things being made New. This is the glorified state of all who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. For the poor, the prisoner, the blind, the oppressed, an eternal brotherhood with Christ of justice and peace. And this comes by his way of establishing a program of repentance and faith and receiving a righteousness from Christ himself. We repent of our sins. We place our full faith and allegiance in Jesus Christ. And His righteousness, His right standing before God is credited to us because He lived a holy and perfect life. Because every one of us falls short of what God requires. And we need a righteousness that is not our own. Friend, have you repented of your sin and placed your hope? all of your worth, all of your joy, all of your treasure in Jesus. In Jesus, you can be set free from the captivity of sin. 
You can receive sight in your eyes that have been blinded by unbelief. You can be released from the oppression of Satan and his evil band of demons. Turn to Christ that you might dwell with him forever. The city of God is the only lasting city. All other kingdoms, all other human ideas of utopia will crush and crumble and fail. God's kingdom alone will bring everlasting peace. God's kingdom alone will bring everlasting joy. And it is only through His Son, Jesus Christ. The justice and vengeance of God is delayed. It is coming, but it is delayed. He is patient. Judgment will come. But for now, Jesus has announced a day of salvation. It is the year of the Lord's favor. The day of opportunity and grace still calls the world to Jesus even now. Today is the day of salvation. Run to Jesus. Throw yourself on Jesus. His blood can make the foulest clean. Be cleansed by Jesus today. That's the call. That's the ministry of Jesus. So this is why he preaches. This is what he proclaims. This I proclaim and this I fulfill. It was big news. How do the people respond? Look at verse 22. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? So here's Jesus telling them in no uncertain terms, I am the Messiah. And Luke writes that they marveled at his words. But the depth of their failure to understand what Jesus is saying is obvious from the rest of the verse. Is not this Joseph's son? Remember, they knew him so very well. He'd grown up in their midst for the last 30 years. He was the local boy who became a pretty good preacher. Indeed, they were delighted. They probably smiled at each other and nudged one another. Hey, isn't this the carpenter's son? And of course, Luke is screaming out the answer to that question to us through the text, right? No, no, a million times no. Remember what the voice at the river Jordan declared? Remember what the family tree revealed? Remember what the devil himself admitted? This is the Son of God. Oh, but they were poor. They were captive. They were blind. They were oppressed. Their vision of Jesus is blinded. And they only see him as a young boy grown up to preach. In their own little village, they miss it altogether. And Jesus knows it. Look at verse 23. And he said to them, doubtless, you will quote to me this proverb. Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. So apparently they've heard rumors of Jesus's work in Capernaum. But what really matters is that he should perform a miracle or two here in Nazareth. A healing, make some food out of nothing, do something. And in asking for such, they prove 
that they completely disregarded the significance of Jesus saying, today the scriptures have been fulfilled in your hearing. They just can't get past Jesus as a small town boy, the son of the carpenter. Their difficulty in accepting Jesus as the Messiah wasn't from a lack of objective evidence. It was everywhere. He'd been talked about for a significant amount of time by now throughout all the region. They knew what he had done. Their problem wasn't a lack of evidence. It never is. Their problem was pride. Their problem was self-sufficiency. So Jesus decided to douse them with cold water using two Old Testament examples. Let's read them. Verse 24. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. So Jesus' first Old Testament example is from 1 Kings chapter 17. This is Elijah's encounter with the widow. The prophet Elijah came across a widow that he was told by God to go to in Zarephath. She was there gathering sticks at the gate of the city for a fire. And when Elijah encountered her, she said that she was gathering the sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. She was getting ready to prepare the last morsel of food that they could eat it and then run out and die. There was famine all throughout the land. Now listen to Elijah's response to this woman. Elijah tells her, do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake and bring it to me. And afterwards, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. So we see next that the woman does exactly as Elijah has said. And the story continues. She and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent. Neither did the jug of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. Now think of this. This woman is in a state of famine. And the prophet comes to her and says, I know you're about to prepare your last meal before you and your son die, but do me a favor, go and make that meal and bring it to me that I might eat. And if you do that, you will have plenty. And because the woman obeyed the words of God's prophet, the widow and her family were sustained throughout the famine. So here's Jesus' point to the people of Nazareth. If the Gentile woman, and it's quite significant that she's a Gentile, If she had been like the people of Nazareth, what would she have said? Why, Elijah? Why would I go do that? Deprive myself and my son of our last meal? If you are a prophet of God, show me a miracle. Give me a sign. Jesus knew their hearts. They demanded more evidence. But like Elijah, Jesus insists 
otherwise. The Gentile woman, unlike the people of Nazareth, gave her last meal to Elijah because she understood her poverty. She understood her absolute need for reliance upon God, not upon the physical sustenance of food. You see, she had a barrel full, if she had a barrel full of flour and a container overflowing with oil, how likely would she be to put her faith in those goods rather than in God? He bless, his blessing to her was her poverty and she knew it. So Jesus tells the people of Nazareth, you are blind, you cannot see, you are poor, but you think yourselves so rich. If they wanted evidence of Jesus' claims to the poor, if they wanted evidence that the scriptures were being fulfilled in him, all they had to do was trust him and ample evidence would be provided. Of course, that's the problem. In their own eyes, they weren't poor at all. They were good, respectable, synagogue-attending, family-oriented, minivan-driving Republican people who went to the synagogue in Nazareth. And what a massive insult to them. What a horrendous slap in the face to be compared with the Gentile widow. But he doesn't stop there. He presses even further. Verse 27. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. So Jesus turns to his second example in Second Kings chapter 5. Naaman was the commander of the Syrian army and was sent by the king of Syria to be cured of leprosy. Now what did the Israeli king think was going on here? He thought the Syrians were attempting to set the table for war. But the prophet Elijah calmed the king's fears and he directed that Naaman be sent to him. So Naaman arrives. Elisha sends a messenger to him and tells him to wash seven times in the Jordan River and that his leprosy would be cleansed. Well, how does Naaman respond? He says, uh, the scriptures say, but Naaman was angry and went away saying, behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord, his God, and wave his hands over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. See, instantly he thought that the prophet should come and do a miracle right then and there that he could see with his own eyes. He didn't listen. So what's Jesus' point here? Well, we have to understand the rest of the story. Continuing on, it says, His servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. His servant came. Wait a second. He told you that all you have to do is go wash yourself and you'll be clean. You're not going to listen. You're not going to do this. 
And eventually he does. So even Naaman, even he who initially doubted the prophet of God was cleaned. The doubting, unclean, leprous Gentile. Clean. Well, at this point, the friendly people of Nazareth weren't so fond of their hometown boy anymore, were they? In short order, Jesus told them that they were poor that they were prisoners, that they were blind, that they were oppressed. He told them they didn't understand him or what he had to say. And now he puts the cherry on top. They heard him clearly say that they were less spiritual, that they were fools, that they came nowhere near Naaman and the widow, both Gentiles. So how do they respond? Verse 28. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. That means they were a little bit more than slightly irritated. Now, we have to be careful here. I have said some very stupid things before. My mouth has gotten me into trouble. But that was my own fault. That was my own sin, my own foolishness. And as a result, there have been a few people in my lifetime that have been a little less than fond of me. But when we consider Jesus' words and how he approaches this, we have to remember that as he encountered the people of Nazareth, he does so without sin on his lips. He does so exposing their hearts. They're not angry for any other reason other than He's exposing who they are and calling them out in their very self-sufficient sin, their own pride, their insistence on evidence of God and his faithfulness. In fact, he not only tells them of their condition, but praise be to God, he tells them that there's hope. He tells them their hope and they reject it altogether. It's the year of the Lord's favor. Help has arrived. And their response, what is it? They're filled with wrath. What do they do? Verse 29, they rose up, drove him out of town, brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. Think of it now. 30 years of life they've observed from Jesus in Nazareth. They obviously never picked up on the fact that he was the Messiah, but he was sinless from day one. They knew his character. They knew his wisdom. They knew that this was the one that they wanted their sons to be like. He's one that we would love our daughters to marry. They never once witnessed him do anything wrong because he never did. He was never disrespectful to them. He was never disobedient. He was never dishonest. They knew firsthand how he was. The most loving, thoughtful gracious, wise, and winsome person that they had ever known. And yet, with only a few words, he slices through the hypocrisy of their religious games, and they sought to end his life. No trial, no clarification, no questions. They were going to throw him off the side of the cliff and be done with him forever. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 8, 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Indeed, the people of Nazareth were very quick to prove this point. 
Look at verse 30. But passing through their midst, he went away. This was divine protection. And I just love the image that this paints when I think about it. The people are are screaming and, and crying out for his blood, making outrageous claims about him. Rage in their hearts, violent desire. And they get to the edge of the cliff and the people at the front of the group yell, Bring him here! And the people in the back said, We thought he was with you! (laughs) And all the while, Jesus is on his way. They prove their own foolishness. Such a large group couldn't even kill a single man. The Lord is watching over him because his day has not yet come. And so let us consider ourselves today. Today there are many widows and lepers who sit among the saints of God in churches all across the world. They are poor. They're prisoners of sin, blind in unbelief, oppressed by Satan. And yet they think themselves to be rich. And so the question is, could that possibly be you? Let me ask you, do you scoff at the thought that your own goodness will not get you to heaven and you are in desperate need of God's grace? Do you reject the notion that goodness will not get you to heaven? That your heart is filled with sin and you will never make yourself clean and acceptable before God on your own merit? You may be a wonderful father. You may be a wonderful mother. You have a good work ethic. You may be a member of a a civic club and bring your children to VBS and say, bless you when someone sneezes and bless their heart when someone is obviously a little slow to the finish line. But listen, you may not see any badness within you, But it's not your badness you have to worry about so much as it's your goodness. Because your goodness in the eyes of God is filthy and worthless. Don't hide in cultural niceties and church tradition to insulate yourself from true spiritual poverty. Can you speak the words of Paul? from a heart that truly agrees, I, no one else, I, above all else, am the chief of sinners. Do we see that in our own hearts? That is the place where Christ proclaims today. Today is the day of salvation. This is the year of salvation. This is the day of redemption. For those who are poor, those who are oppressed and blind, turn to Christ. He calls us to turn to him that he might set us free. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord God, by your grace. You have allowed us to see. You have allowed us to walk free from the prison of sin. You have loosed the chains 
of our bondage. You have released us from the oppression of evil. And Lord, for those of us who have hearts that truly say, I once was blind, but now I see. I am the chief of sinners. I know my own heart. I recognize my own poverty. I have nothing of worth. I have nothing of value. All that I have, all that is worthy of anything is from Christ and Christ alone. Lord, for us, give us a greater love for you. Help us to delight in you all the more because of this great truth. Give us humility. Lord, for those who sit here this morning with religious pride, with hearts of self-sufficiency, who are relying upon their works, their own self-righteousness for redemption, I pray, God, that you break them of spiritual pride of pride that blinds them to truth, of a pride that keeps them from understanding that they have a great need for a great Savior because they are falling far short of what He requires. Lord, I pray that for those that today is the day of salvation, that you awaken them from their state of deadness, that the dungeon is filled with light and that you break their chains that they might walk free. Free from the bondage of sin and death, that you would be glorified and that they would have true and everlasting joy with our Lord and Savior who is worthy of all glory and honor and praise. And we ask all of this in his precious and holy name. Amen.